This is the East Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Ferox Mapback, University of Florida, Jacksonville. Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. Carrie Valdez from Spectrum Health in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the Online Education Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Well, hello and welcome to this edition of the Trauma Cast. Um, in trauma, there is a lot of dogma or inherited wisdom. Uh, one of the absolutes in trauma resuscitation is the strict avoidance of vasoactive medications in the resuscitation of hemorrhage. This dictum was backed up by several clinical studies over the past few decades, but there have been several animal studies that seem to contradict the clinical outcomes. In August of 2019, in the edition of the uh, JAMA Surgery, my guest today, Dr. Carrie Sims, was uh, coordinator and lead author of a study titled uh, Effective Low-Dose Supplementation of Arginine Vasopressin on Need for Blood Product Transfusion in Patients with Trauma and Hemorrhagic Shock. Uh, this uh, study uh, caused quite a stir on the uh, social media world, and I am fortunate enough today to have Dr. Carrie Sims with me today. Carrie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And um, for those who may not be uh, uh, acquainted with you, would you mind just giving us a short introduction of yourself and where you're at, where you're headed, and all those kinds of things? Sure. So I'm uh, Carrie Sims. I'm one of the trauma critical care attendings at the University of Pennsylvania, um, uh, and I'm the research director for the Panacute Research Collaboration, which uh, helped us with the study. Um, I'm actually heading towards uh, Columbus to be the chief of trauma at the Ohio State University starting in January. Um, and thank you, Dave, for the opportunity to talk about our study. Yeah, and I think for full transparency, I have to um, mention the fact that Carrie kind of brought me into my uh, research maturity, I would say. She kind of dragged me kicking and screaming against my better efforts, and so I, I owe her a, a career debt uh, for, for helping me to get to where I am at today. So thank you, Carrie. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Um, oh, well, let's dive right in. So, um Again, as I said, this this paper did cause uh, a little bit of a stir. It got quite a bit of uh, mention on social media. There was a lot of people kind of debating. Um, I have been approached by my own um, emergency medicine colleagues who are watching this uh, with a, a lot of interest. And um, uh, and so I think there's a lot of interest in this topic out there. So would you mind just tell me, um, tell me a little bit of the background and sort of the lead up. How did you come up with the idea for the study and what was really the, the, the basis for, for trying to get this study done? So the, uh, the study um, really was um, born out of an observation when I was a fellow. So um, I was a fellow at the University of Pennsylvania, just like you were back in the day. And um, I admitted a patient uh, to the ICU who had a major liver trauma and he had been a motorcycle crash, um, had gone to the operating room with an X-lap, was very unstable, um, large volume resuscitation. Uh, came to the ICU and just wasn't doing well and, uh, you know, was on pressors. We were transfusing. Uh, he just, you know, was not going in the correct direction. We actually brought him back down to interventional radiology to make sure that he wasn't bleeding. He didn't appear to be bleeding. He came back from uh, that to the ICU and, and continued to be very unstable. And uh, we had just had a journal club um, uh, probably a couple weeks before about uh, vasopressin and uh, vasopressin deficiency in septic shock. 
And I sort of wondered whether or not this was early sepsis. Was there somehow some bacterial overload, something that happened? Maybe he was really vasoplegic from being vasopressin deficient because he was in early sepsis or in profound in inflammatory state. So I put in a swan back in the day when we actually used swan catheters, and he was, in fact, profoundly vasoplegic. So I thought, oh, I'll just put on some vasopressin and see what happens. And lo and behold, we put on vasopressin. The pressure, the, the blood pressure improved substantially. I was able to wean down the norepinephrine and epinephrine. He started to make urine. He really looked fantastic by the time he rounded the next morning. And I was so, as, as all fellows out there will know, uh, after you've taken care of a really sick patient overnight, I was so proud of myself for having like turned the chip around that I was really- Best feeling like, in the world, yeah. Yeah, like I was really like very, you know, very proud of myself that I was really coming into my own as a, as a critical care provider. And um, let me tell you that my attending was not happy. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, uh, basically- read me the riot act about how vasopressors should not be used in trauma, despite the fact the patient had been on vasopressors, you know, when I received him, um, that I should have just been using fluid and, and blood products to resuscitate him. And he made a very public show of how I was wrong. Um, and for anybody who knows me, um, that just does not fly with my personality <laughs> at all. Um, and so I set out to show him that, 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 he, that he was wrong. Um, and so I, you know, did a lit search uh, and found that there really wasn't very much out there in terms of vasoplegia in hemorrhagic shock. Um, there was a, a couple of animal studies um, uh, looking at the Brattleboro rat, which is an animal that uh, doesn't make vasopressin but has vasopressin receptors, uh, and how hemorrhagic shock in that animal model uh, was, you know, profoundly lethal, um, despite, uh, you know. Uh, other animals, uh, you know, not dying as quickly. Um, and, and there really wasn't a lot out there. There was one study out there by Landry, who was the author of the vasopressin deficiency and septic shock, in which they looked at two patients, um, as well as uh, an animal model of 10 uh, dogs and looked at vasoplegia and vasopressin deficiency. And that was really the basis for um, uh, the, the idea that the notion that vasopressin deficiency exists in hemorrhagic shock. So then I, um, you know, it wasn't clearly was not, uh, demonstrated in humans at this point. So I then did a study in which, um, as a young faculty member, I looked at, uh, blood samples in patients who were undergoing, um, massive transfusion. And I took a blood sample on arrival. And then after every fifth unit of blood product, um, throughout the course of the resuscitation. And so you know, patients who got, you know, 20 plus volumes uh, or 20 plus units of blood product, um, if you look at their vasopressin levels, they actually start off very high in our trauma bay, um, primarily because our transport time for our patient population is very uh, short. Um, but with the uh, active uh, resuscitation and blood loss and, and massive exsanguination, massive resuscitation, those vasopressin levels are cut in half by the fifth unit of blood product. So it really did look like, just like Landry's uh, dog study, that our, our patients were exhibiting um, vasopressin deficiency or losing vasopressin levels um, with active resuscitation. Um, so that was sort of the, the, uh, the impetus um, for suggesting that vasopressin deficiency existed in humans. Um, we then went to the lab where we uh, investigated the use of vasopressin in an, uh, a rat model and were able to show that giving vasopressin with resuscitation improved uh, renal function. 
So with all of this information, both the human data and the um, animal data, uh, we went to the uh, FDA and, the, uh, and got permission to do an exception from informed consent trial uh, to look at giving patients vasopressin early during the course of the resuscitation. Um, while we were getting that set up, there was a, another study with um, uh, Dr. Cohen did looking at uh, vasopressin in uh, trauma patients. Um, their protocol was slightly different than ours, um, but what it did show was that it was um, safe to give uh, and that it did decrease the amount of uh, uh, crystalloid resuscitation that patients required mm -hmm. if you give it early. So with that, uh, we were able to then conduct our trial uh, at, at the University of Pennsylvania. So um, you, you've done a, um, a great job summarizing some of this stuff, but when you go now, it's interesting when you go and search, uh, let's search for vasopressin in, in trauma, what you find or in shock, what you find is kind of mixed. You find um, clinical studies from, you know, 15, 20 years ago that kind of say uniformly bad, but there's a lot of uh, animal studies, as you mentioned, that really kind of support it. What's interesting, I thought, from some of the clinical studies um, is that um, norepinephrine and epinephrine, phenylephrine were kind of uniform, uniformly um, unhelpful for patients, but there seemed to be this sweet spot where vasopressin didn't have the same effect. I'm thinking specifically of a study by Jason Sperry, and I think a senior author was Gene Moore that had that, you know, vasopressin did not show the same deleterious effect as uh, norepinephrine and, and epinephrine. Right. I, yeah, exactly. And I, I think that that should be to mention that those studies, both of those trials uh, that you mentioned were actually retrospective reviews. Um, so retrospective clinical trials uh, as opposed to prospective trials. So I think that it, it sort of calls into question which patients were getting vasopressin in the beginning. Was it uh, that there was somehow... Um, that those patients were sicker, that it was given late in the game, it's not really clear. So I think that our study um, really helps define the role of where vasopressin might be helpful and does show that it actually is beneficial. Well, so um, let's get into the methods a little bit. I think um, I, there's, a, there's a lot of interest in the idea of the exception from informed consent or EFIC studies, uh, mm -hmm. particularly in trauma. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges that you faced um, having you know practiced myself for a little while in Philadelphia? I know that there's not always the best relationship between uh, healthcare and the community. And so uh, I think it's probably particularly challenging to do an EFIC study in this in this part of the world. Can you talk a little bit about what, how you, how you accomplished this and what you did to kind of build the bridges to the community? So in order to really advance uh, the care of the injured patient, uh, exception from informed consent trials are absolutely essential. There is no way that we're going to be able to really advance care and improve care if we don't do these kind of trials. And the FDA has recognized that as well. Um, so in order to do, uh, an exception from informed consent trial, you really need to fulfill multiple criteria, this, the trial itself. It has to be based on very good preclinical or clinical data. There has to be equipoise. Um, there has to be um, benefit to the potential patients themselves. There has to be no real alternative or really poor alternatives to the uh, proposed therapy. Um, and then the one that everyone really remembers is this, the concept of um, uh, community consultation. So as, as you mentioned, you know, communities, uh, um, particularly patients who are um, at risk for urban violence, are also uh, communities that have been in the past 
um, sort of taken advantage of in terms of research. Uh, you know, if you think about Tuskegee and also some of the, the trials for that have been conducted at Penn in terms of uh, um, dermatology and uh, skin issues, you know, there there's a history of not treating underserved populations uh, very uh, well. Uh, and so it was really important for us that if we were going to do this exception from informed consent trial, that we actually had buy-in from the community. Um, we think that it was, uh, we thought that the, the trial would be beneficial to the patients and it met all of the strict criteria for the FDA, including uh, a very limited uh, time uh, to enroll. Um, but, you know, whether it's correct on paper or it's correct in the community, you're absolutely right. There's a, you know, that's a very big, important difference. So in order to do this trial, we actually um, did two things. Exception from informed consent requires that you consult the community that will be impacted by the research. And traditionally, that's been thought of as a geographic community. So the people around the, um, the uh, place that you're going to be doing the study, um, that may or may not actually capture our our patient population. So what we thought would be better would be to actually interview patients and their families who had experienced uh, trauma um, and do um, a qualitative study about what their thoughts were about exception from informed consent in general, but also our study in particular. Um, and what we found was that there was an overwhelming um, support for the trial. We also then went out to the community at large uh, and held uh, focus groups, um, which ranged from, um, you know, community uh, centers, um, the mayor's groups, uh, the block, uh, uh, neighborhood block groups, um, a mosque, a, a church, uh, and tried to get a whole spectrum of people in the community who might have an interest in uh, this type of research. Um, and again, what we found was that there was an overwhelming uh, response that this was an important um, study to be done in this community because they were so impacted by gun violence and so many of them were dying that the community really felt that if there was a way to save their lives, that we should be doing the study. And, and then they gave us great suggestions on how to get it done. It was really remarkable, actually. Well, and... Um... You know, obviously, this sounds like a very involved thing. I think you were working on this lead up to the study, even when I was there as a fellow, which was, uh, you know, a year or two before you actually started enrolling. So the, the amount of work it, it, it takes is just tremendous, which explains why it's so hard to do. But uh, congratulations yeah. on getting all that done. And it sounds like it was um, sounds like it was very beneficial for uh, for both the study and for the for the community. So that's that's fantastic. Yeah, you're you're not kidding when it, when you think about the time from the time of conception of the concept uh, to the actual publication of the paper was over ten years. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's dive into the nitty gritty of the study. Then, uh, why don't you tell me okay. a little bit about um, kind of how you designed it, what the protocol was, and kind of how you um, you know what the what the intervention group and the comparator group were defined and 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 how that went about. So uh, based on our, our finding, our previous finding, that uh, patients who receive more than five units of blood products start to develop vasopressin deficiency, we uh, included uh, patients who were uh, in exsanguinating hemorrhage who received six units of blood products. So then we would know uh, that, that they were, in fact, uh, potentially at risk for vasopressin deficiency. Um, so folks would come in uh, and they would be blindly randomized to either receiving 
um, the, the vasopressin as a bolus followed by an infusion or a saline placebo. There were a number of exclusion criteria um, just because of safety issues. So for example, patients who were already in renal failure or who had um, evidence of coronary artery disease uh, were excluded. Um, patients over the age of 65 were excluded for the risk of coronary artery disease. Um, and then, you know, the typical players, the pregnant patients and the, those who were prisoners uh, for uh, ethical reasons um, were excluded. We also excluded patients who had um, CPR in the field because of their low likelihood of survival, mm-hmm. um, as well as patients who received an ED thoracotomy because of the low uh, chance that they would survive as well, with only a, with the goal of an, uh, enrolling 100 patients to see a decrease in blood product uh, transfusion. If we included a lot of people who were going to die, um, we, would, we would not be yeah, able yeah. to see any uh, yeah, so we were very specific about our inclusion and exclusion criteria uh, based on um, a power analysis to look at uh, a decrease in blood product transfusion. Um, so patients would come in. We had, uh, this took a lot of effort. We had uh, people who uh, were uh, researchers who would come down to every trauma uh, and they would evaluate how much uh, blood products they were getting. And as soon as the uh, um, six unit of blood product uh, was given, uh, they immediately enrolled the patient. So it took coordination between the researchers, um, the trauma team, anesthesia, um, and all of those uh, um, uh, communications and uh, bridges needed to be built before the study could actually be implemented. Because you can imagine at a teaching university, if you show up to the uh, operating room and say, this guy is enrolled in uh, the study and you need to give him this medication, people will be like, what are you insane? Uh, And so, you know, we needed to get buy-in from all um, the nurses, from the trauma team, from the emergency medicine team, from the anesthesia team, like everyone needed to be on board with actually doing this trial. And then we needed people to be there uh, watching uh, in real time so that the, the drug could be given. There were some uh, caveats as well, like we had originally planned for the vasopressin to be stored in pharmacy. And then you know, after a couple of enrollments realized that that was the delay, there was too much of a delay in getting the medication. So we then got a, you know, a, a research refrigerator in the trauma bay. And so we're able to make up the medication uh, or, the, or the placebo uh, in, in real time and not have to depend on uh, pharmacy to bring it down to us. So that was actually another little hurdle that we got over. Um, it really was a, it was a, you know, a, a challenging trial in a number of those respects. Uh, and then post-surgical um, uh, or post-IR, um, we follow these patients out for 48 hours, which also included uh, the research assistant taking um, down every, uh, uh, you know, cc of, of fluid people got, how much urine they made, how much blood products they got in real time, and, and just keeping track of all of that. Wow. So, I mean, it, it just sounds like a, a Herculean amount of effort. And, and, and I, I'm willing to bet a lot of this occurred in the hours between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. as well. Correct. Yeah, correct. Well, um, let's talk a little bit now about some of the some of the criteria. So, um, just to reemphasize, you you randomized people after they had already received um, five units, right? So, this maybe the sixth unit was infusing when they were randomized and started receiving the presser. Um, so, so they were they were randomized as the sixth unit was going in, okay. um, and they then got the bolus as soon as the sixth unit of blood product went in. Okay, and the bolus was and then started four on units. Correct. 
bolus was four units of vasopressin. So it's one tenth mm -hmm. of the old uh, ACLS dose, mm -hmm. but substantially higher than the drips that we typically would run in a septic patient in the ICU, which is 0.04. So it's kind of in that sweet spot, correct? Yes. And that was actually recommended by Dr. Landry. Um, we consulted with him and he felt that that, would, that amount of bolus would get you to an appropriate level of 100, at least 100 picograms per deciliter. Mm -hmm. And then following the bolus, then the, the 0.04 unit drip was run um, basically continuously, and you titrated based on a MAP goal of 65, according to the paper. Yes. Yeah, so the, the drip was run continuously in the operating room. Um, and so it only became, we only started titrating it when the patient um, uh, had definitive control. Okay. Yeah, had definitive control. Mm -hmm. And so there was, it sounds like there was still a sort of uh, an attempt to kind of do permissive hypotension or not, reg, you know, normalizing the blood pressure until definitive hemorrhage control was there. So the 0.04 was going in, and even if it wasn't bringing the pressure up to quote unquote normal, it was just left where it was. So that I think that's a critical point to to understand as well. Well, so the so the the MAP goal was sixty five. So if you once you were enrolled, if you were not making a MAP goal of sixty five after definitive hemorrhage control, you were given other pressors to make it uh, sixty five. Right, right. After after surgical control or absolutely control. Mm -hmm. correct. Okay, um, and then it was and and you terminated data collection at forty eight hours. Why why pick forty eight hours? Um. Because when we we had observed the um, other uh, patients with the the vasopressin deficiency, we found that most people uh, had recovery of their vasopressin levels or were no longer requiring pressors at forty eight hours. And it gives you a certain amount of time for your pituitary to create vasopressin and start to secrete it at a normal rate. Got it. Okay. Uh, so forty eight hours was the cutoff. And um, so let's go into some of what you found then, some of the some of the findings and differences between the groups. Oh, okay. So what we found was that the vasopressin group um, did require less blood product uh, uh, transfusion over the forty eight hours. Um, we also uh, so that was our major finding. Uh -huh. The sort of surprising finding was that we found that the vasopressin group actually required actually developed fewer DVTs mm -hmm. as well. Um, and then finally, we weren't really powered to look at differences in either mortality or many of the major complications, but there was a trend toward uh, decreased length of stay, decreased uh, uh, renal failure, and decreased um, ventilatory requirements. So not really powered to look at that, but there were trends toward, toward those things. And, and it looks like, I mean, the, you say significantly fewer blood products, but it was, it was about twice, right? I mean, the median, I think, was about 1.5 for the vasopressin group or 1.4, I'm looking at it now, and 2.9 for the non-vasopressin group. So it wasn't, it wasn't just a, a, you know, a small amount here. There was a substantial decrease. Correct. It, uh, we, I think we calculated out to be something like four to five units of blood product over this course of a massive transfusion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, with those results, um, let's talk a little bit about, um, well, real briefly, let's talk about kind of if this has changed your practice and if you're doing this routinely now. Um, and then I will, uh, I will ask you to sort of speculate about some of the some of the other theoretical questions that the, the, the study reads. So, but, but first off, has, have, have you started doing this now with all of your bleeding patients? Yes, I have. And, um, 
have you seen similar improvements um, or any other sort of anecdotal, you know, not not studied, but have you seen improvements of those other outcomes that weren't uh, powered for in this study? Uh, well, I think it's it's very. I mean, it's very hard to to uh, uh, sort of do the. Uh, it's very hard to tell yeah. in that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because um, it, you uh, you give it and you you have good outcomes, or you know, it's it's unless you actually do a controlled trial or you actually do a very deep dive into whether or not it's beneficial or not. In in it's hard to tell. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, but you certainly so, haven't seen I, any no. downsides of it. Of, of, no, I, I have not seen any downsides. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, let's let's speculate a little bit here. Do you think um, you know most of your patients were men? Uh, most of them were penetrating trauma, just being uh, West Philadelphia. Do you think the similar effect would hold up for blunt trauma, or is that is there any reason that blunt trauma would behave differently than penetrating trauma? I, I don't think that there would be any difference. And we did have some blunt trauma patients. I can't think of a, a mechanism about why penetrating versus non-penetrating trauma may um, benefit from vasopressin more preferentially. Um, I, I think it more has to do with uh, uh, either prolonged shock states in which vasopressin levels decrease, uh, and that's certainly been borne out in animal studies, or, um, you know, the amount of blood product that we give you uh, and, and transfuse. So if you're getting a massive exsanguination protocol, then you are going to have decreased vasopressin levels. So I, I, I can't imagine the mechanism necessarily um, uh, having a, a, a significant impact unless maybe blunt mechanism may actually benefit more because it's also a, a more pro-inflammatory state. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. Hmm. It's very speculative. And is there any reason to think there would be sex differences between male and female? I don't think so. Uh, I do think, you know, the data would suggest that women uh, tolerate uh, uh, trauma better than men. Uh, so I don't know if we would see as much benefit with women, but it's hard to it's hard to imagine that there's a sex difference in in terms of uh, vasopressin levels. In uh, the post um, sort of OR phase in the definitive hemorrhage control, after that's been accomplished, um, you did also allow other pressors to be used. Um, one question I've had is, um, how were you sure that they still had definitive hemorrhage cr- control? Um, were you able to kind of distinguish between maybe people who had another source of bleeding or ongoing hemorrhage as the cause of their hypotension versus the vasoplegia or sort of the post-resuscitation uh, hypotension sort of phase? How, how did you suss that out? So I, I think, first of all, we didn't have a lot of patients, if any, that I recall who were had ongoing bleeding. Um, I think definitive control was actually pretty definitive. And of those people who did have ongoing bleeding, their lactic acid just didn't clear. So they were hypotensive requiring pressors with a, and their lactic acid remained elevated. Mm. So we followed that as well. Um, so I think that if you're resuscitating with fluids and, um, vasopressin, uh, and vasopressin is on board, if your lactic acid isn't clearing that, that there's a problem. Um, in terms of why we chose a map of 65, my concern was that, um, you know, it, it's, it's now almost taken for granted that vasopressin deficiency, if you add vasopressin on, you get a, a blood pressure benefit. Um, but I think what our your uh, readers or your listeners may want to know is that if I give healthy volunteers vasopressin at the 0.04 level, it doesn't change your blood pressure. 
So, so this is, it's important to think about this as um, not necessarily as a vasopressor that we're adding on per se, but more that we're adding back hormonal supplementation. Um, and that happens to have a presser effect in patients who are vasopressin deficient. So if I, if I give it to healthy people, it's not going to change their blood pressure. Um, but if people are deficient, which we had uh, uh, sort of hypothesized that they would, giving vasopressin will improve their blood pressure. So clearly having different blood pressures in two different groups can have different impacts. So in order to control for the, the uh, impact of blood pressure on uh, outcomes, we had to have a group, we had to have, keep the blood pressure at a, at a controlled value. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, otherwise, the impact that we would have seen um, if there was a difference in blood pressure, people would say, oh, well, because it was a difference in blood pressure, that's why you're seeing the, um, the, the benefit of vasopressin or the, uh, the lack of benefit in, if, if we didn't have, uh, if we had a negative trial. So it was really important to control for that aspect to have a blood pressure. Now, and other people will say, well, you know, why did you choose 65? You know, 65 is a mean arterial blood pressure. And, and that, um, you know, that's a, that's a tricky thing. People really don't know what the, the best mean arterial blood pressure uh, for patients really is. And so 65 has been chosen for sepsis. And so we chose it for um, somewhat arbitrarily for this study as well, because there had to be controlled blood pressure um, since that, that variable would be changing in patients who were vasopressin deficient. Right. And presumably somebody with less than 65 in the non-vasopressin arm could conceivably get more blood products just because of having a lower MAP. So, so that's why you had to equalize the two groups. Exactly. Precisely. Um, there's, um, there's been some interest um, in the, um, especially in the EMS world about, um, you know, avoiding intubation in the critically ill or, or bleeding patient as in order to avoid sort of precipitating um, codes and, and things like that. And so there's been some interest in push dose vasopressin under those circumstances. Um, and so I, my question for you is, do you think um, you waited in this study until after five units of blood, do you think there would be any benefit to sort of doing earlier dosing of that, of that bolus dose of vasopressin? I think that there may be benefit, but I don't know uh, whether there will be. Um, it's certainly if you have to do some procedure that you know is going to drop the blood pressure, um, giving vasopressin for that is is a fine idea, in my opinion, because our patients uh, in those circumstances are already profoundly acidotic, and we know that pressors, uh, traditional pressors like epinephrine and norepinephrine don't work as well in an acidic environment. So giving patients vasopressin may actually, which doesn't, uh, which works very well uh, in an acidic environment, uh, may be the presser of choice. Um, that being said, um, I don't think we should be using vasopressin uh, to treat um, hypovolemia. Um, so vasopressin in this study um, was really to treat the vasoplegia that develops in prolonged shock or in um, a vasopressin deficient state where you've washed out or used your vasopressin. Um, it's, it was not designed to treat hypovolemia um, from blood loss with vasopressin. I'm not sure that's a great idea. Um, the studies, the animal studies that have looked at vasopressin, high-dose vasopressin in um, severe hemorrhagic shock, those are all um, 
done in a late stage shock setting as well. And they, while they do prolong survival, there's really not good long-term follow-up uh, in terms of, uh, you know, whether or not there's more multi-organ failure or what have you. So I, I would not take from this paper um, that you should be giving vasopressin to treat hypovolemia. I would take from this paper uh, that you should be using vasopressin to prevent shock-induced vasoplegia while resuscitating the patient. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and that was one of my thoughts about this is that I could see, you know, if I was in a, a small hospital, maybe, maybe a more resource-restricted environment that didn't have a bunch of blood products, I could see the light bulb going on and saying, oh, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to give vasopressin. And then you could see it's a short uh, jump from there to not giving blood products, you know, giving push dose vaso and then sending the patient on the helicopter or ambulance or whatever to uh, transfer out of your, uh, out of your. Correct. Uh, Correct. Yeah. So, so I, I think that that would be, um, you know, uh, we don't have a study to show that, that that's safe. Um, and I'm not sure that this study actually supports that because this really was looking at patients who are at risk for <clears throat> vasopressin deficiency. And to remind our, our, your listeners that vasopressin deficiency leads to both arterial vasoplegia, but also venous vasoplegia. So in that setting, the venous tank is getting larger. So it can certainly be used at, um, to close down the tank if you believe that you are getting uh, uh, vasopressin deficient, but it should not be used to treat um, hypovolemia per se. Right. Well, if you had unlimited resources and time and volunteers, uh, what would your future directions of inquiry along this line be? So I, I think the study is now begging for a uh, multi-center randomized control trial uh, so that we can look at giving um, vasopressin um, uh, earlier um, and look at the impact on um, mortality and morbidity. So, so for example, I think in patients who are at risk for developing vasopressin deficiency, those that require large volume resuscitation, I think that it is, uh, it would be nice to know that it were safe to give as you start to resuscitate the patient, not foregoing resuscitation, but initiating it sooner. Um, and then also looking at what are its uh, uh, implications in terms of survival and, uh, you know, the development of renal failure and uh, a lung injury. Right. Okay. Well, uh, for those listening, I will put links to the uh, articles that we've mentioned during this podcast, specifically the Dr. Sims paper here from JAMA Surgery in 2019, August 2019 edition. Um, thanks so much for spending time with me today, Carrie, and uh, for uh, elaborating on this. I think uh, I, I think there's a lot of people that are interested in this concept, and I think uh, this may be one of those papers that we see has, uh, it shows up in a lot of those uh, papers that you should know or papers that should change your practice kind of discussions at, at different trauma conferences. So congratulations on getting it done. It sounds like it was a, a tremendous amount of work and uh, labor of love to get it uh, to get it all the way through the process. Thanks so much, David. I really appreciate your time. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. 
So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.